So we are here again, me preaching last minute. Um, we have no control or, over what happens around us when sickness hits us or when situations arise. And uh, as previously mentioned, Matt and his family are homesick. And I was asked on Friday if I could preach today. So uh, this is uh, a little improv sermon in a sense. While the blessing of more experienced preachers would be to have many sermons on the shelf, which they could just dust off and preach as new. I long for that day. <laughs> but I do, I do have, um, um, I do have uh, some work that I've done already as uh, uh, the elders in the two churches study regularly. Uh, and uh, so I, dust, I dusted off one of those and I tried to give it as new. In fact, I've written it. This will be the third time I've written it. The first time I lost the notes. The second time I wrote it was just <laughs> scrabbling some notes before I was delivered at the elder training. And now today I rewrote <laughs> the whole sermon. So I guess third time is the charm for m- many things. And uh, as I told Deborah when she told me that they were sick, God is sovereign. and He orchestrates the history of the world and he orchestrates whatever happens to our lives. And I have to tell this to myself late nights when I preach and we have, when I study to preach and we all have to say to ourselves every day that God is sovereign and he rules fairly and with mercy. And he promises that all things will be for the good of his people and for his glory. So, as I mentioned earlier in, this, in the worship service, we have gone through the Gospel of John now for a good while. It started in August last year. We still have one more chapter to go, and Matt will preach that whenever that is. <laughs> Hopefully next Sunday, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see. We'll just take time as our help and our Lord, who will heal, heal him and bring a, them back to us. But um, the text for the day is uh, Colossians chapter 1. And providentially so, this is a fitting detour to our sermon series in John because it speaks of, the, of who Jesus is and what his work on the cross accomplished. So I hope you will see this as we go through the text and we will look at a portion in Colossians where we see Christ as preeminent. And I will get back to this, this term preeminent. We behold his glory and in Colossians Paul is explaining to them how this who this glorious Christ is and that he is worthy and as the the melodic line of John has been that we behold his glory and by it we believe and etern- have eternal life not to be a one string banjo but if there's anything that we take away from John and from this text as well is that we can see him and we can believe and by that have eternal life in him. So my sermon title for today is The Preeminent Savior, Lord Over All. The Preeminent Savior, Lord Over All. And today we will look at four things describing who Jesus is and four aspects of his lordship, what his lordship does. The first point is Jesus is Lord Over All and he is Lord before all. He is, Jesus is Lord over all, and he's Lord before all. 
following Jesus as Lord in the church and over, Lord over the church. My third point will be this Lord has saved you. This Lord has saved you. And the final point, this Lord is the hope of our faith. So let's get into it. My first point then, Jesus is Lord over all and Lord before all. And this letter written by Paul and also helped by Timothy writing it, goes out to a church in Colossae. Um, these Colossians live in Colossae, a place in the southwest of modern-day Turkey, thereabouts in Asia Minor. And uh, this church was not started by Paul. This, this church was uh, started by a man called Epaphras. He had heard the teachings going around, and he brought it home to his, his city, and uh, almost he became a church planter, so to speak, to that city. And he wrote some letters to Paul when he was in prison, Paul. And this letter, amongst others, are one of the letters that Paul wrote in prison. And uh, the, the people of, of Colossae, the Colossians, were under pressure to embrace Gnosticism or legalism. Legalism, in this sense, is going, is going back to live under the strict rules and regulations of the, Juda, Juda, um, the Jewish customs and laws. Not just the laws in the Bible of the Old Testament, but also their traditions and their other laws that they then piled upon the people to live holy. And as we see Jesus through the Bible, he said that the, the Old Testament laws are good, but what you do is just binding the conscience of, consciousness of men. So they wanted. So some people wanted to go back to the former days of Judaism. And simply put, Gnosticism is a very broad and very, very out there kind of philosophy, where there's there's one true Godhood in a sense, and many parts of Him that are also small or lesser gods or eons as they're called. And Jesus Christ was not the true God. He was just one of the aeons having come, bearing some portion of truth. That he was not the full truth, but he was a truth, a way, if you would. And um, this developed a little later than what Paul wrote. But this is then providentially speaking to that. It started, as we could say, but it fully developed later on. But if you look into it, Gnosticism is really, really weird. But we will not get into the details of it today. Um, and when Paul hears these concerns, he writes this letter to warn and to encourage the, the Colossians of the truth about who Jesus is, which is the main theme of this book, that Jesus is Lord over all, and he's Lord over all, then all, over all creation. He's not just one God, he's the God. And since he is Lord, he has secured the redemption for his people. So the start of the letter is Paul giving thanks to God for the Colossians' faith, love and hope that they have along with a, a prayer that they would increase in their spiritual wisdom to fight against these other impulses. And uh, then he brings this doxology, this praise to God, um, praise to the crucified and exalted Messiah, which is part of our text today, this doxology. And this, that Jesus is exalted by his crucifixion and by his resurrection again. 
And it, that is the ground for and the source of Paul's work, that Jesus was crucified and that Jesus was resurrected. As he says that all the energy that he powerfully worked within him, Paul saying this, that he worked more than everybody, but it was not him, it was Paul being given the, the energy from God. And then this resurrection is that energy where he finds the strength. Then it comes to this warning against philosophy in the later chapters, just this giving some context to the sermon, and uh, which is not Jesus, these other uh, impulses that wanted to influence the Colossians. And uh, Paul then says that we should set our minds on the things that are above where Jesus rules, which ends the book. A very short book, but a very powerful one. But we'll go into our text now for 15 to 23. So verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the verses just prior to our text, 12 to 14, Paul thanks the Father for his plan of redemption, of the Son in whom we have redemption. He is the image of the invisible God. So the Father's plan for redemption was that the Son, and the Son, he is the image of the invisible God. So, and he is the firstborn of all creation. As I mentioned, verses 15 to 20 is a poem or maybe an early hymn that the early Christian sang um, to, to teach who Jesus was and almost like, like a creed, like the Apostles' Creed that we cite. It was to unify who Jesus is and unify their faith under this, this banner of this doxology in verses 15 to 20. Jesus, the image of God as a likeness or the portraying of God, not as a copy, but as a showing forth of who God is. As Jesus says in John, in chapter 19, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. As the clarification of John 1, 18, that Jesus, who has at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has made God known. This invisible God is Jesus, and Jesus has made God known to us. And it says that Jesus, who is the firstborn of all creation, and Paul here looks not to one who was born at a time where Jesus suddenly started to exist. He was, so the firstborn is not who was born first. It was not Jesus, it would be Cain and Abel, who were the firstborn of all creation in, the, in that sense. So firstborn, as Paul here uses it, is in way of priority or in rank. It is the supremacy that Jesus being before all created things and being supreme over all. He is the source and he is the grounds of all that is made, bringing us back to the beginning of our series in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus did not start to exist at his birth in Bethlehem. He is the firstborn of all creation. He's the, he's the pre preeminent one. 
who has been from all beginning. Um, I've heard earlier that when the FBI trains their agents to spot false money, they do not give them a bunch of false bills and look at all these versions to point out the errors of the bills. They make them study a real bill tirelessly. Every detail, every tiny nuance, every line and dot, so that when they see then another bill, they have this picture or this real bill in mind, and then they can easily spot that this line should not have been as long, this spot should not have been there, should have been here, this watermark is not the right color. So they do not study all the false ones, they study the real one to know what is true. And then by it, they know everything compared to it, like this is not up to standard, this is not a real bill. It almost shouts that that dot should not be there, that line should not be there, and so they compare it to the true bill. So Paul does not go into the great detail here in this letter of the falseness of what the Colossians were going through, what they met, but he shows up the, the real bill, if you would, not to make it silly, but the real Jesus, so that they can see who Jesus is. He is the firstborn of God, the one preeminent, the firstborn of all creation. This language, the firstborn, echoes in Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, um, and the ruler of kings of earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, which we'll get into also later in the text. And our Old Testament scripture that will directly say is Psalm 89, verses 27, which we read a lot of. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth, being alluded to in this text. So by him, all things were created. All things. There's this uh, saying by uh, uh, Kuiper. He says, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And then a different version of this is, There is not a place where you can place your thumb where Jesus does not say, That is mine. All is Christ's. He is the Lord over all, and by that follow us that we are his this world is his. He, he is Lord over everything. And if I were to, to stay here and open up an encyclopedia, beginning from A, going over to C or Z, I would have to stop at each word and say, Jesus made this. Jesus made this. This elephant. Jesus made this. The bee. Jesus made this. And... Uh, we're fortunate that we are an internationally, mainly English-speaking church, because in the Norwegian Encyclopedia, we have three more letters. So then we'd be here even longer. The uh, elephant is his, the pine tree, the sparrow, light, hydrogen. Every single hair of every single creature has been created by God. He created us humans. Every new child knitted in its mother's womb, he made them all. 
as the late R.C. Sproul said, that there is not one piece of cosmic dust flying in the universe that is outside of the scope of God's sovereign providence. So whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, whatever it is, or some of the later portion of the Colossians uh, letter entails angels or divine beings, none of this is outside of the scope of Jesus, and all of it is under his rule. He is above it all. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He created them all. So everything and everyone must answer to him, the Lord over all. As all things were created through him and were created for him. And continuing in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Very dangerous heresies has arisen over time as Paul wrote this, saying that Jesus was not truly God, And there was a time when he did not exist. God's word said that the word, Jesus, was before all time. That he was before all things and that everything was created for him and by him. Crushing these heresies. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Truly God in the sense that, every, that he in everything is and have forever has been God. And even saying this has been leads to a sort of think, okay, what is the beginning? But he has forever been. There's never been a time where he was not. He is from all eternity to eternity. He, he, didn't, he wasn't from eternity. He is from eternity to eternity. I try to wrap my minds around that. Eternity. Ugh. One day we'll get there and we'll see, maybe, hopefully, what that entails and the grandeur that is. And he who created all things, he holds it together. He sustains everything. He preserves all things and he governs all things. As Jesus is preeminent, preeminent meaning that he is the utmost rank, dignity, and importance. He is outstanding. He is supreme. This is coming from a dictionary of preeminent. Towering above all, from Latin, preeminer, before and standing out. He is the one above all and before all. Jesus Christ is Lord over all and Lord before all. All things were created, stands created, and remains created because of Jesus. A Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said that the preeminence of the universe, the, sorry, the permanence of the universe rests then on Christ far more than on gravity. It is a Christ-centric universe. It is not at the end, well, in a sense, there's molecular structure, there's atomic gravi- pressure, there's uh, gravity that pulls us down so that we don't float up into the sky. But even more so than gravity holds everything together, Christ holds things together because he is ultimately the creator of all things. My second point then, Jesus is Lord in the church and Lord over the church. Looking at verses 18 to 20. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to be reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here we have this word again, the preeminent, the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn, that he might be preeminent. This describes the relationship of Christ and the church. He's the source of the place of authority. He governs, he leads. It is the summing up of the previous point that in all things that he might be preeminent since he is Lord over all and Lord before all. And in him, this man, Jesus, the fullness of God, the Son was pleased to dwell. This is an artistic way or fancy way of saying that Jesus was truly and fully God. Vera homo, vera Deus, truly man, truly God. Not a human shell, which God just was poured into, but in him, Jesus, the God-man, he was fully, he was truly God, and he was truly man at the same time, where we must not mix the two together, but we cannot separate them either, which is a baffling thought. He is the fullness of God, and the Son was pleased to dwell there. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. A Gnostic saying, as I mentioned, believe that Jesus was just one of the aeons, that he was just a part of God. But here it says that the fullness of God, all of God, in a sense, was in Jesus. He was truly God. He was not just part God. He was truly God. And not only did God become man, it pleased God to dwell in him. Do not miss this, because this is the, the grounds of our faith. It is so important for our faith. And this is one of the points that the world finds so, in their mind, so stupid to their judgment, that God stepped into his creation. And I'm Apology on, on in front, this picture will be so simple, but it's, I'm trying to f- take this. Say that I paint this canvas, this big canvas with paint. I paint mountains, I paint rivers, I paint forest and a plain where animals are grazing. And then I step into this painting and living in this world that I've painted. It's a super simplified version, but Jesus as God created all things, and then he humiliated himself to be born into this world. He was born, he lived, he grew, before he finally redeemed it by his death and his resurrection. It is almost impossible for us to comprehend that the creator of all things, outside of all things, stepped into this creation so that he might be preeminent. As Hebrews 1 says that he holds the universe by the word of his power. He steps into this world that he holds up being born as a man. And in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when we think of the baby in Bethlehem, this is the one whom he is. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14. Emmanuel being God with us. This was written 700 years before Christ was born. And then also in Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epiphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. This is 800 years before Christ was born. Whose coming forth from of old from ancient of days is a way of saying God, God the creator. So saying that even in the Old Testament that God himself would be born into the world and this babe would be God. And now to the precipice, the the peak of the mountaintop, and by him to reconcile all things to himself in our text. Ephesians 1, 9-10 says, The Father set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time, meaning at the wanted or set forth time, to unite all things in him, Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, through the blood of of the cross. This is where our peace is found. Our salvation was bought by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, giving his life as an atoning work on our behalf. So Jesus, by all this, is preeminent. Jesus is the Lord in the church and Lord over the church. Jesus is the Lord of this church. We live to please him whom it pleased God that in the fullness of time God did dwell. And as Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will to, or in other translation, it, was, was the, it pleased God to crush him on his day of sacrifice. So that in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What is this Folly? Folly? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it is good news indeed, because now the cross is empty, and the tomb is also empty. Our Lord Jesus lives and reigns. My third point then, this Lord that we have spoken about today, this Lord has saved you. Verses 21 to 22. In our text, and you who were once, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This tells how this reality are to change the lives of the Colossians and of us. This. Alienation speaks of something that is far off. Not necessarily aliens, but that is also termed that way because it's far off. But this speaks of something that is far off. And I found that the Greek word that is translated apelotreomenos, well, I'm not used to Greek, is the experience, it's the experience of isolation or estrangement or transferred to another owner. We who were once under the rule and kingdom of 
Satan, we were alienated, far from God, doing evil deeds, but now we have been reconciled. Reconciled is friendly relations between parties has been restored. A quarrel has been settled. We have been united, brought back. Peace has been made. He has resolved the differences between us. Jesus has appeased the Father on our behalf. He has basically brought us together, us and God, by is how he's done it, by his death on the cross, so that, as the reason, that he can present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the Father. It is not of us. We were helpless under the debt of sin, but he paid the penalty. He made peace between God and man. Blameless and holy, we are legally and covenantally. We are counted as righteous, so we should want to live like we are. It's none other than the preeminent Christ, this Lord who has saved us. As we have seen, this amazing God-man, God with us, this Emmanuel, the creator and the sustainer of the universe and everything in it, who humbled himself to step into his creation, stooped down, as we might remember the text in John, where the apostles stooped down into the creation, being um, by intention having to lower themselves. Jesus stooped down into our creation, his own creation. I mean, of course, being born as a man, living a life that we could not live, having a righteousness that we need, and by taking on our debt, that we have been, re- been reconciled to God by Jesus. This is what we have been looking at our, in our sermon series in John, the glorious truth about who Jesus is. And beholding him, we might believe and have life in his name. This text today, then, is the description of this preeminent Savior, who this, this wonderful creator, this preeminent Christ, who loved us so that he gave his life on the cross to die so that we might live. And what are we looking to? The empty cross and the empty tomb, because neither of them could hold him there, the creator of wood and rock, this preeminent Lord. And this brings us to our final and fourth point. This Lord is the hope of our faith. This Lord is the hope of our faith. Verse 23. If you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This takes us to a natural reminder and warning from Paul. You will be holy and blameless and above reproach if you indeed continue in the faith. We must persevere. This is the antidote to this text the I once believed I got my ticket punched and I can go on living as I want it's not a I yeah Jesus I did that so now I can just live my own way it is if you continue in the faith if you if you continue in the faith that you are living a life of obedience to him the Westminster Confession of Faith our Presbyterian confession that this church holds to. Chapter 17. 
of the perseverance of the saints reads shortly here. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Two, oh, two, sorry. This perseverance of the saints depend not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy, the efficientness of the merit and the intercession of Jesus Christ. The, his work is so full and working, and this is what it all hangs on. The abiding of the Spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility, infallibility thereof, the certainty and the truthfulness of it. And finally, third, nevertheless, they may, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incurred God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, having their hearts hardened and their consciousness wounded, hurt and scandalized others, and bringing temporal judgments upon themselves. This confession of ours says that we are, tr those who are truly saved, God's elect people, they will continue therein. They will be preserved or persevere. They will persevere in their faith and being preserved by God. And although it says, it says in point three that even Christians might sin because of either the temptations of the world, the devil, or the corruption that it remains in us, which is why we must continue in the faith. This is us this that we have spoken about now. We who are God's people, we will be held onto by him. As if we are linking arms with God, silly as it may be, we can lose our grip or slip, but he will never lose our grip. He will hold on. As, I don't know if you've heard that analogy before, but as MacArthur puts it, uh, Reformed Baptist in the States, he says that if I could have lost my salvation, I would have done so already a long time ago. So we must persevere then, but it's he who holds us and sustains us. He holds us together. As Paul said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So hold on, yet know that he will hold on to you but he still commands us to hold on no matter what. So from the confession, know that all those who, are, who believe will persevere. Those who are not believers cannot hide it for long, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought, as the Bible says. So the warning is, one can fake belief to peace others, but one cannot fake and fool God. The comfort then is believe and God will keep you and preserve you, presenting you holy and blameless and above reproach before our Lord. So today we have looked at the preeminent Savior, Lord over all, 
In it, we have looked at four ways Jesus displays his lordship, being that Jesus is Lord over all and Lord before all. Jesus is Lord in the church and Lord over the church, and also in this church, as I mentioned. This Lord has saved you, has saved us. And this Lord is the hope of our faith. This message that Paul proclaimed to the Colossians, this is the message we have heard now for some time in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of hope. We are not saved by godly conduct, but we are saved to live in godly conduct. We are not saved for what we have done. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is in the one who made peace by the blood of his cross and who is the firstborn of the dead, as our text says. Verses 15 to 20 is a doxology of the early church. Doxologia from Greek, where doxa is honor, glory, and logia is saying or words. It's literally glory speaking. Let us speak his doxa wherever we go, praising the one who reconciles us to him by his work on the cross and through the resurrection.